Looking for a new high-end mascara without breaking the bank? The new L'Oreal Paris Panorama Mascara gives you a high-end lash look in a premium gold luxe packaging. It's all about panoramic volume and fully fanned out lashes. With its tapered brush, the new Panorama Mascara catches every single lash, giving you the false lash look without any of the hassle. Say goodbye to clumps and flakes, because this mascara is specially formulated to resist them all day with up to 24-hour wear. And the best part? It performs better than Lux mascaras at only a fraction of the cost. You can buy Panorama Mascara on Amazon today. You know, I've been quarantining for the last six months in my house in Los Angeles, and I was kind of tired of it, to be honest with you. I wanted to get out and see the world, and and I figured a one way of socially isolating and still being able to go out of the house is to go out into some beautiful places and uh, do some things that I love to do and make some films about it and do my podcast, and it's been great. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Push the Envelope. I'm the AV Club's editor-in-chief, Patrick Gomez, and on today's episode, we welcome the incomparable Tom Green, who is currently traveling across the U.S. in an RV recording his new podcast, which is uh, appropriately titled The Tom Green Interview, and all of that is just the most Tom Green you could possibly be. Uh, he'll be chatting with us about this new endeavor, as well as answering the AV Club's 11 questions. But first, I am joined by our managing editor, Eric Adams. Hey, Eric, thanks for being here for this episode. Patrick. Eric. Eric. Patrick. If you uh, don't get what Eric is doing yet, you will, um, because uh, he is here to talk about the 1995 Oscars. Uh, and I think that that was a very solid Uma Oprah reference. Of course, that is a bit that David Letterman did while hosting that 95 Oscars. And that was a performance that the the late night legend himself has dubbed. Uh, these are his words, not mine. An explosion of excrement. Um, Eric, when I first announced that we were going to have staff come on to talk about various awards-related subject matters for uh, this podcast, you like raised your hand almost instantly and said that this was a a subject that you wanted to come on and discuss. What what made it just like the obvious answer for you? <laughs> Well, long-time listeners to Push the Envelope will recall that this is kind of my awards season, award ceremony origin story, that this is the award show that I was incredibly eager to watch because uh, I don't think I got into this in that episode, but this, like, 1995 is a very formative year in terms of my pop culture tastes and opinions and just paying attention to, I think, pop culture and entertainment and show business in general. Um, that was the summer of Batman Forever. It was just a, 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 a big year for franchises that I cared about, movies that I wound up caring about in the future, and just I found myself reading a lot of Entertainment Weekly that year and paying attention to things that 10-year-olds usually don't pay attention to, like who's going to win the Best Visual Effects Oscar at the 67th Academy Awards, uh, where I was pulling very hard for the mask, because these were, of course, 
the awards that were celebrating the 1994 movies. Uh, 1994 was Jim Carrey's big year of Ace Ventura, Dumb and Dumber, and The Mask. Uh, Jim Carrey forming the obvious through line here uh, for my enthusiasms. But I don't think you get Jim Carrey. I don't think you get kind of the atmosphere that a lot of what we think of as the icons of 1990s comedy without David Letterman. So I'm assuming that this means that you all were a Letterman household for sure. You know, I I don't know if I could ever say that like my parents favored one over the other. They're very agnostic, I think, in terms of their late night tastes. They they'll they'll flip it back and forth between all of the Jimmies. Uh, but <laughs> in in the nineties, the thing the thing about Letterman was like he gave off this air of untouchable cool and unflappability on top of being like this totally innovative force in television comedy who kind of had one foot in the Johnny Carson, Steve Allen style of talk show hosting, but, you know, was also raised with those TV conventions and tropes uh, which is a word that I hate saying, but I'm just going to say it, uh, that gave him this skewed perspective on the the culture that television had created. And that was such a crucial part of his early comedic voice, kind of turning all of these expectations that we have for television on their head, putting stuff up like stupid pet tricks or... Uh, putting himself in a Velcro suit and launching himself into a Velcro wall. But everything could have been a joke to the 80s and 90s David Letterman. He didn't take himself very seriously. He didn't take show business very seriously. And that's what made him kind of the ideal but also unorthodox choice to host the 67th Academy Awards. Ladies and gentlemen, your host for the 67th Annual Academy Awards, David Letterman. Thank you very much. Now we're five minutes late. Uh, For a little bit of context, this is a couple of years after he had left NBC for CBS because NBC had refused to make him the next Johnny Carson. They bet on Jay Leno instead. Uh, And at the time, he was the undisputed king of late night, both in terms of cutting-edge comedy, but also in terms of the ratings. Uh, I think it's very easy to forget, especially considering how dominant Jay Leno wound up becoming in the late night ratings, that there was this sort of period right around the time that Letterman hosted the Oscars, where he beat Leno handily all the time, every night. And I think, uh, as we'll discover over the course of this conversation, that those fortunes kind of wound up flipping after this hosting gig. 
Yeah, well, we'll get to the uh, the hosting gig in a second, but it just makes me think of that. Uh, it's one of the TV movies like that's ingrained in my brain. Um, that they where they just dramatized the whole Letterman Leno kerfluffle. And I just remember the actor that they got to play each of these each of these guys was both perfectly cast, but then also not like them at all. I I don't know if you recall watching that that TV movie, but um, it, it's one that's just ingrained in my brain. Yeah, you're talking about the the Late Shift, based on the Bill Carter book. Yes, yes. Yeah, I don't know if I ever saw that from end to end, but like the fact that they made a movie about that is is very. Uh, closely imprinted on my brain. Uh, they got John Michael Higgins, one of our favorites from the Christopher Guest repertory to play David Letterman in that. Also from the Christopher Guest company, you got Bob Balaban in there playing Warren Littlefield, who is a TV executive that Balaban played a fictional version of on Seinfeld. This is neither here nor there. This is what conversation is like with me because I am a weird kid who watched the 1995 Oscars on a tape. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm the one that took us down this road. So, <laughs> I, you know, I will take credit for it there. But I think that's also why we ended up doing the jobs we're doing because we both were those kids. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, like Letterman plays a big role in kind of committing these non-memorable pop culture moments to memory so that you can recall them and drop them into conversation or make jokes out of them, which, you know, was the that that was his shtick, this sort of like offhanded, sarcastic, tossed off kind of humor that, you know, made made him unlike anybody else in that late night sphere uh, didn't really make him a good fit for other areas of television at the time. Uh, He had a very infamous kind of early bomb when he did like a morning show out of Los Angeles. Didn't really find his his footing and his voice until he moved to New York. And I think that kind of sets up the landscape that he's coming into in the 1995 Oscars as this kind of outsider and this guy from Indiana who didn't grow up within or around the industry and had a bit of a jaundiced view of it. Ladies and gentlemen, when I was given the honor of hosting the 67th Annual Academy Awards, I knew I had to find out as much as I possibly could about the motion picture industry. Well, he wasn't an obsequious interviewer and he wasn't somebody who showed interest in whatever project the guest was promoting he just kind of he, he wanted to have fun and you know some some guests could get on that wavelength we see some of the people who could get on that wavelength in some of the segments in these oscars uh, i think specifically of the cabin boy audition <laughs> uh where you see a a tremendously over the top martin short uh reading letterman's one line from the Chris Elliott movie Cabin Boy, uh, which, as we all recall, is Wanna Buy a Monkey? Would you like to buy a monkey? I can do one bigger. But, I mean, I think, like, the, the fact that they would shoehorn a Cabin Boy segment into the Oscars is just kind of a sign of both what is unique and funny 
and interesting about these Oscars and what made it so disastrous as an Oscar night, as something that was supposed to be playing to a much larger segment of the viewing public than was tuning into Letterman, even at the height of his powers. Well, and this was not his first time kind of having a, a bad awards experience. He had hosted the Emmys in 1986, uh, or, or co-hosted it with Shelley Long, and that was also poorly received. So I I just, I, I can't imagine what it was like, uh, you know, the nerves heading into this, even if you didn't have that experience behind you. And I think you see it very early on. You know, you watch, you watch the clips of his opening monologue, you read the reviews that came out pretty immediately afterward, and you can see him losing that cool. And one of the things that he didn't have in these awards gigs was, you know, like a sidekick, like a Paul Schaefer to kind of throw to and commiserate with as the bits were bombing. I've been dying to do something all day, and I think maybe... We can take care of this. Oprah? <laughs> Uma? Uma? Oprah? He's really up there on his own all alone in front of such a huge crowd on such a big stage. And when he reaches back to get the Oprah Uma stuff. Oprah Uma. Uma Oprah. It's going to be one of those things I won't be able to stop doing all night long. Which, you know, is that's. That's a Letterman signature, the kind of like when the joke doesn't go over, you're going to reach back to it and you're going to hit it again and again and again and again until it works. And that just was not happening that night in March of 1995. Uma Oprah. Well, you know, we can dig into that moment uh, now if you like. But one of the things, you know, he did an interview with The Hollywood Reporter um, to celebrate 25 years of this award ceremony earlier this year. And in that, he he discussed even just coming up with the joke, like how much planning that he just as a as somebody that wasn't experienced in doing a show like the Oscars. There's also that element of it that there was just there was no there wasn't enough preparation there for him to even know where they were seated in the audience. So, you know, he was trying to find them and that was stressing him out. And and there's a lot going on that just like gives me anxiety just thinking about it. <laughs> well, it doesn't help that, you know, that joke, you know, that wasn't something that was written far in advance. That was something that his longtime producer, Rob Burnett, just kind of pitched when they were almost going to air. Like that's that was a little backstage bit that he carried out onto the stage. And like you were saying, like you just for a production of this scale, like there's a certain amount of planning and preparation that has to go into it. And it is absolutely devastating to any element of of improvisation that a performer wants to introduce into it. Oh, yeah, right. The only thing yet to be determined is which Roman numeral goes after the word Rocky. That's the only thing, right? That's it. 
and then maybe get Oprah and Uma to work in the film. When you were watching it, do you recall thinking it was hilarious at the time? Did you recall thinking, like, like little 10-year-old Eric thinking, God, this is going really awkwardly? <laughs> I don't think I had enough of a context to understand what was successful and what was unsuccessful in terms of the Oscars stage. I thought it was hilarious. Like, you know, it it plugs it plugs into a very basic primordial kind of sense of humor which i i think is pretty frequently underlining these types of letterman bits where he's just amused by the way that certain sounds and words work uh there's a reference to hakuna matata in the cab driver remote that is part of the monologue that I can see as having the same sort of comedic roots as the Uma, Oprah, Keanu bit. What does Hakuna Matata mean? Nothing to me. I don't know either, but it's fun to say. Let's say it together a few times. Uh, Hakuna Matata. 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 The circle of life. He is just amused by the way that these things sound. It was there to be a fun little offhanded joke. And it, you know, like you said, it, it didn't necessarily land. So he returned to it time and time again. Quincy Sigourney. In a way, I think if you, in, in through the lens of history, maybe saved it. Um, but also, like, I don't know. Yeah, because I don't know that we would be sitting here and talking about David Letterman's Oscar hosting, if he hadn't just said, okay, I'm going to own this and just like hammer it, hammer it, hammer it. Um, because otherwise I think we would have just been like, oh yeah, that like kind of didn't land. Like it was somewhat forgettable. Although the ratings for, for that, that Oscars were the highest since the last time Johnny Carson had hosted, which, you know, he was kind of seen as the, um, at this point, Billy Crystal was kind of becoming the new face of the Oscars, but, you know, for so long it had been Carson, and this was a ratings high. So, I mean, obvi- obviously a lot of people were watching it, but by solidifying that moment in our brains, I think Letterman goes down in, as one of the most memorable, at least, Oscar hosts, uh, if only because of that. And then, I mean, there's there's a whole other question, kind of, of what happened after that night, where I was really surprised to find in my research for this conversation that, you know, one of the things and one of the reasons that we remember this Oscar ceremony is that once the ceremony was done, Letterman did not let up on it. Like uh, the the interview that ran in the New York Times right around the same time as that Hollywood Reporter interview really emphasizes the fact that Letterman bombing at the Oscars became a running gag on Late Show for almost the entirety of the rest of the year, that he was still making jokes about that months later. And so if, you know, if there's anyone who we can kind of attribute the legacy of that night to, uh, it really is David Letterman. He really did not let us or himself forget about it, even as uh, he continued to call it the greatest professional embarrassment I've ever endured. You know, even the fact that he was willing to do multiple interviews about it for its 25th anniversary kind of speaks to the, the the fact that it may have taken a kind of 
creative toll on him and maybe got some of the the shine off of him for the remainder of his time on CBS. He's as much to credit for us not forgetting about it uh, as he is for kind of doing it in the first place. You know, well, it, it is interesting to to look at the trajectory of the ratings because, you know, if you ask him, uh, he says that yeah, he doesn't think it had anything to do with it. But after that point, it, it started to become the era in which Leno kind of overtook things in the ratings. Although uh, if, if one positive came from it, uh, apparently uh, him and Oprah, uh, who who obviously uh, there was always talk of like some like a big feud between the two of them, uh, they became friends. And uh, he, he has said that they've never discussed it. I can't imagine that that's actually true. I think it, it has to have come up or at least I would like to envision that it comes up. <laughs> I mean, it's just kind of, it's this interesting testament to what you can and cannot take the piss out of, you know, like Letterman is the ultimate at deflating showbiz uh, puffery, and he he couldn't do it on show business's biggest night. And I also think it winds up kind of being this emblematic moment in the pop culture of the 1990s. I feel like that year's Oscars could have been a sea change for kind of Generation X as a cultural force. Your big Oscars matchup that year is Forrest Gump versus Pulp Fiction. And what could be two more perfect avatars for those types of sensibilities and attitudes. And what winds up happening is that Forrest Gump absolutely runs the table, that Forrest Gump wins Best Picture, that Robert Zemeckis, uh, who uh, the, the, the Blank Check podcast is currently doing their run through his filmography, and they've pointed out that Zemeckis is kind of like the ultimate baby boomer director and Forrest Gump is the ultimate boomer film. And here he is, you know, winning best director, getting the award from his mentor, Steven Spielberg. It really feels like this anointing of the boomers as this, I already said, cultural force, but let's just say it again, as this cultural force that just will not go away and will not relent in the face of the Tarantinos and the Lettermans, who themselves are baby boomers, but have that Gen X sensibility of being able to talk back at the TV or to not take the movies so seriously. And it turns out that if you want to not take the movies seriously, the last place you should do that is the Oscars, the place where the movies are taken the most seriously. But like we said, it was entirely memorable, and I'm so glad that it, it launched you on your path of loving award shows and the Oscars, uh, and and ultimately, Eric led you to here today on Push the Envelope. <laughs> I'm just happy that it didn't lead me to wearing banded collars uh, at formal events, because uh, as Letterman says to Tom Hanks when he comes to the stage for the uh, Stupid Petrix bit, uh, Would it kill you to have worn a tie? 
<laughs> well, there certainly are many other moments from this Oscars that we could discuss, uh, and maybe we'll have you back on, Eric, to to do that in future episodes of Push the Envelope. But I want to thank you for joining us and and chatting here today about this. And, and of course, we'll have you back on to talk about uh, many other things as well. Well, thank you for having me. It was it was an absolute delight. And uh, to the listeners out there, if you've never seen any of what we're we're talking about here, uh, it's all up on YouTube in a very well organized uh, chronological playlist from the Academy. So, and we will certainly have that content on avclub.com as as part of promotion of this podcast as well. So you can check that out there. Uh, and if you are craving more David Letterman content, of course, the new season of my next guest needs no introduction just dropped on Netflix. So definitely check that out as well. But don't uh, turn off push the envelope just yet because we are now going to be joined by the AV Club's executive producer of video and podcasts, Mara Eakin, who got the chance to speak with Tom Green. Hey, Mara. Patrick, thank you so much. And this is such a, a great fit because Tom Green is, has said that he is so heavily influenced by David Letterman. So here we are. I'm glad it worked out. Yeah, me too. Uh, so you got to chat with Tom Green about his new podcast, The Tom Green Interview, which just launched in August. But you also uh, put him through the AV Club's 11 questions. So for any listeners that are unfamiliar with that franchise, you want to give us a little bit of a primer? Well, 11 questions is a long running AV Club feature where we ask the same 11 reader generated questions to a number of celebrities over the course of the year, whether it's Steve Gutenberg or D. Susan Mero, or in this case, Tom Green. There's also a 12th question, and that comes from the person who did the interview before, which uh, I think in this case, Patrick, was Dulé Hill. Yes, yes. Uh, any subscribers to Push the Envelope that listened to the previous episode would have heard my conversation with Dulé, in which he uh, tackled these 11 questions. So the question you will hear Tom Green answer at the end of this coming interview will be the one that Dulé posed, which is um, super cool. I wish we would have had you last week to give us to give us this primer. I, I, we kind of just threw it at the listeners, but uh, I'm sure people could follow along. So we get to hear your conversation with Tom, uh, which is obviously a little bit about his podcast and then gets to our, these 11 questions, uh, which we should get to now. Let's take a listen to that interview. Hello. Hi, how are you? Good. How are you doing? What's going on? What's going on? Not much. So uh, you're going to get to see a little bit of uh, action happening here as uh, my van gets pulled out of this shop that they were just doing some work on the, my chairs. Uh, and it just so happens that I'm getting the van given back to me uh, here in Salt Lake City while we're talking. So <laughs> it'll be like action packed, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of the van, I guess um, you are in some sense a trailblazer in terms of like putting out your own sort of media and you, you know, you've been doing a version of podcasting for a long time. Why is that important to you? And why is it important to you to sort of get your own message out there? Well, listen, I, I don't, I, I've been on this road trip right now in my, in this van that I've just purchased and I'm kind of basically living out in the wilds of America. I'm just, you know, I've been out in the desert for the last week. Uh, and, uh, I enjoy it. That's the reason I enjoy doing it. I enjoy all aspects of it. Uh, not just, you know, not just what I'm doing now with uh, being out in the wilderness and hanging out with my new dog, Charlie, you know, this is really great. But um, also I like, I like the filmmaking side of it and the technology of, of, of building the studio and recording the audio. And, and so, uh, yeah, I'm not sure if you've seen 
my YouTube posts from the last few days, but I've been making these films, these little short films uh, every day. I've done about three of them, not not every day, but a, few, a couple a week, you know, and uh, I just love doing that. You know, I, I've always enjoyed photography and filmmaking and radio and television. So that's that's the answer. I guess I just enjoy it and it's something I love to do. It's a little bit of foresight in some sense. Like I was talking to Steve-O, who I know you had on your show a while ago. And um, he was basically saying like connecting one-on-one with fans is like, you know, the way of the future and the way of the past, I suppose. Why the van? Like why driving across America? Well, we originally shot my TV show in a van back in the nineties. We had a Ford Econoline van and we drove all around Canada in it. You know, it's just um, now, you know, it's just sort of a nice throwback to that because it's a, Hey, you got to travel to go places and film things. Uh, but the technology has gotten so much better with the electronic systems that I have in the van that it actually allows me to build like a full editing and studio in there, basically, which is exciting to me. And, um, you know, I've been quarantining for the last six months in my house in Los Angeles, and I was kind of tired of it, to be honest with you. I wanted to get out and see the world and and I figured a one way of socially isolating and still being able to go out of the house is to go out into some beautiful places and some parks and some some forests and uh, do some things that I love to do and make some films about it and do my podcast. And it's been great. Here's the van now. It's just pulling out right now. It's kind of packed. It's in packed up mode right now. Thanks a lot, Stephanie. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Tell the guys thanks, too. And and we'll uh we'll see maybe next time we'll uh we'll make it work sure, <laughs> yeah absolutely. okay Have a good day. thanks thanks i'm not pointing that at you by the way it's 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 in selfie mode so okay. selfie mode okay thanks okay bye <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah i was just getting some some thing done to the seats here this is the van and uh it's uh nickname is Rosinante, which is the same name that John Steinbeck gave his van in, in the book Travels with Charlie. <laughs> and my dog's name is Charlie. And uh, this is sort of the, the idea. Now, see, it's pretty dusty because I was out in the desert last night. But um, it's actually kind of in, in packed mode right now. I'm not going to any grocery stores or any restaurants uh, the entire trip. I'm uh, preparing all my own food out in the desert and in the forests and I'm bringing all my food with me. So it's, it's not in the most uh, yeah. <laughs> beautiful state right now. Everything's packed up, but, um, it actually, it's really nice when it's, uh, not all everything lying all over. I'm sure. Yeah. So as part of this 11 questions thing that we do, the questions are, are pretty out there. So <laughs> there's no segue. So I'm just going to launch into these. If you made a candle, what would it smell like? Uh, cotton candy do you like the smell of cotton candy yeah well i just randomly picked something because i don't know i don't really have much of an opinion on that broccoli <laughs> maybe broccoli <laughs> i just think it would be kind of really funny to have a broccoli smelling candle what is your favorite album from high school uh probably tribe called quest low end theory mm-hmm. I know you did some rapping for a time. Are you are your skills still tight, or have you totally lost those? Oh yeah, I'm I'm actually recording a a record. I have like a uh, full recording studio in the van to record music. So I'm actually doing doing some some new tunes while I'm on the road. 
That's awesome. Um, question three is, what conspiracy theory do you think is the most plausible? Sasquatch, I would say. I, I, I'd say I believe, if you, if you want to call that a conspiracy theory, I would say that Bigfoot is probably real, in my opinion. And that's my theory, and I'm sticking with it. Do you think there's just one, or do you think there's, like, a family of self-perpetuating Bigfoot out there? No, 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 no. It's, 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 it's a species. It's a species of animal, so it's... There was just one, and they would be gone long ago. No, it's yeah. it's, it's like it's like a species that's not been discovered. They're very very uh, careful about getting discovered. You know, they discover new species like every year, tons of new species. Yeah, a lot of bugs. <laughs> yeah, well, they discovered a new species of monkey last year. An entire monkey, you know, not a crazy. That's a pretty good one. Yeah. Question four is: What's the first time you were disillusioned by politics? Well, to be honest with you, like, I didn't really um, ever really, I don't know, I don't don't really have an answer to that question, actually. I'm sort of trying to stay out of the political noise these days. That's totally fine. It's just a train wreck. I just, you know, I think part of the reason why I'm doing this road trip, honestly, is because I just, I just want to get away from, like, the news. And I'm in a lot of places I'm at, not right now, because I'm in Salt Lake City for, for, for the moment, but. A lot of the places I'm at, I don't have cell service. And, you know, it's kind of like nice to just get away from the phone and get away from all this nonsense for a minute, you know? And that's that's kind of what I want to show my audience and bring my audience along with me when I do that too, where everybody can sort of relax and just get away from all this crap for a minute, you know? Yeah, it makes total sense. It sounds really nice, actually. Um, Again, no segue. Here's question five. Who would you call if you needed help burying a body? Well, I don't really think I would uh, have to do that, actually. <laughs> Hopefully not, yeah. So, <laughs> no, no I, my personal it. opinion is if I ever had, had to bury a body, I would probably do that by myself. And then call the police. <laughs> yeah, probably a good idea. Just keep that kind of stuff to yourself. Um, question six. What's your favorite Halloween costume you've ever worn? I remember when I was in like the seventh grade, I replicated Ralph Macchio's shower costume from Karate Kid. And I know it wasn't my idea or anything, but I still thought it was kind of fun because everybody loved Karate Kid at the time. So it was really like questionable whether or not I was dressed up as a shower or whether I was dressed up as the Karate Kid. So people would say like, what are you dressed up as? And I was like, clearly like had a power curtain around me. And they'd say, are you a shower? And then I'd say, no, I'm the Karate Kid. So that I, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. You remember the dance scene in Karate Kid or the Halloween dance where he goes to Halloween dance and he's dressed as a shower so he can like, you know, not get seen by the bullies, you know? Yes, of course. Yeah, exactly. So that was that's probably my favorite one when I when I borrowed Ralph Macchio's idea. But see, the whole hook of it was like I wasn't dressed as a shower, I was dressed as the karate kid, you see? <laughs> I get it. That was that was the whole hook. That was the whole that was the whole gag. You see, I was the I was the karate kid. <laughs> um, <laughs> this one actually might be pretty applicable to you right now. But if proximity to your industry were a moot point, where would you most like to live and why? Well, I mean, it's it's interesting question considering what I'm doing right now. Like, I've made a point to create this mobile studio environment so that I can kind of be anywhere. You know. And I'm really enjoying that because I'm having a good time traveling around the country and going to all of these amazing places that I, you know, otherwise haven't had a chance to see. So 
So it's been pretty cool. But, uh, you know, as far as, as far as places go, I mean, you know, I, look, I'm Canadian. I'm from, I'm, I'm American too, by the way. I became a U.S. citizen, US citizen uh, last year. But, um, you know, I live in Los Angeles now. I like Los Angeles. But uh, I could see myself being in Canada someday too. I'm definitely once a Canadian, always a Canadian. You know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, sort of what you're doing with the van is almost saying like, well, you can be anywhere. Like, it would be nice. You know, it's. I guess it's nice to have somewhere to park the van at some point, but you can yeah, do, exactly. do your job anywhere, really. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of uh, the fun thing about this van is that it's it's you know it's it's got a full studio. I can do what I want to do anywhere, and I think the technology is existing today that it sort of allows you to do this kind of stuff, which is kind of cool, you know. Totally. Question eight. How did you learn about, quote unquote, the birds and the bees? Like, did you learn from school? Did your parents sit you down? Did you learn it from some kid on the street? Um, yeah, I was a kid on the street. <laughs> <laughs> Number nine is, what's the pettiest hill you're willing to die on? Like, you're like, I hate when toilet paper goes over the top instead of underneath. Something like that. You know, I've been, I've been trying lately to not, like, let little things bother me. It's been kind of a... Uh... Something that as I get older, I found a lot of comfort in, in not getting completely like annoyed uh, unnecessarily by little things. So I, I, I would say like pet peeves in general are something that I'm not willing to let uh, be the hill that I will die on. That I agree. There are certain things you have to let go. Um, number 10, what... Like pop culture, art, like is there a record, a book, a TV show, a movie, whatever, do you turn to when you've had a bad day? Well, I mean, I love listening to Dave, David Bowie and Joy Division. Uh, some music I often go back to whenever I like listening to something familiar. I'd like, I like to pop on a Joy Division record. Which one are you going with? Oh, uh, I'm listening to their Greatest Hits album now, but... Uh, <laughs> That's totally acceptable. They only have so many songs. Like the greatest hits really, really puts yeah. them all together. Yeah. Number 11, if you could find out the day you were going to die, would you want to know or would you want to be totally blind about the answer? It would depend on the day. You know, I, w I don't think I would want to know if I was going to die tomorrow. Maybe if I was going to die in 50 years, I, would, I wouldn't mind knowing that. That would definitely take the pressure off because I do feel like a lot of times like in life, I'm, very driven to try to accomplish things that I want to do in life before I die, you know, and not knowing definitely makes that a lot more complicated. That's true. And it's also like, if you knew it was going to be in 50 years, like you're going to learn to water ski or whatever, you know what I mean? Like whatever the thing is that might be scary. Exactly. The 12th question is from the person who did this interview before you. And then you'll ask a question to the next person, not knowing who you're asking. Okay. So this question is from Dulé Hill, who did the interview last. And he said, how do you continuously stay fit in the midst of this pandemic? Yeah, well, um, I'm uh, definitely pretty busy, like, with all the, the traveling and loading and unloading of the van and, uh, and all of the uh, sort of moving around. So, like, there's a lot, a lot of equipment involved, a lot of, a lot of film equipment. And so every time I get to the campsite, I kind of got to unload and load the van up again, which I was thinking, well, that's kind of a, I was at first thinking it was kind of a drag, but now I just sort of say it's kind of like my daily workout routine, you know, lifting up boxes into this van. So it's 
kind of like go, my version of going to the gym is loading and unloading my van every day. <laughs> we did a, a video years ago that was two bands that were on tour together and it was called Pack the Van and it was like who could repack their van the fastest. It's pretty uh, exhausting, but, uh, you know, it, it actually ends up being kind of, uh, you know, worth it, obviously, because I'm having a blast. I love it. Well, thank you so much. And I really appreciate all your stuff and I really admire what you're doing. Yeah, thank you. And uh, I'll talk to you. Uh, I'll talk to you soon. I think it's really cool that Tom has launched this podcast, especially because he has this kind of full circle moment of being one of the first people to do podcasts in the way that we now know them and did that decades ago. Yeah, along with Ricky Gervais, I say, I guess you could say he's one of the fathers of like modern celebrity podcasting. Um, he's been doing a version of a podcast on different formats off and on since about 2010. He's also, you know, I mean, his whole deal since he started doing public access in Canada has been like creating your own content and putting your own self and your own uh, vision out there. And so that's, uh, he's really influential as far as any sort of media now that we're looking at that young people are creating. Yeah, which is, you know, we are, we're too young for someone that we grew up watching, Mara, to be that influential, right? I mean, <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> I was pretty you old can, when I was course... watching him, so <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> um, you can check out Tom's 11 Questions interview at avclub.com, and the Tom Green interview is available wherever you get your podcasts, with new episodes launching every Thursday, just like Push the Envelope, so maybe turn this into a little double feature or something. Uh, listen to ours first, though, just in case you get busy later. <laughs> uh, that's going to do it for this episode of Push the Envelope. Mara, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, where can people find you on social? Uh, I'm on Twitter at, at Mara E, M-A-R-A-H-E. Perfect. And you can find me at Patrick Gomez L.A. Uh, that's going to be our episode for this week, but we will be back next week. Until then, bye! This episode of the AV Club's Push the Envelope was brought to you by producer Michaela Heck and sound engineer Ryan Allen. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.